words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in the book of Job. We'll be looking at chapters 22 to 28. Job chapter 2, chapters 22 to 28. Again, Job's found right before the book of Psalms. Psalms is kind of right in the middle. So I know sometimes it's hard to locate some of these Old Testament books. But right before the book of Psalms. As you're turning there, please let me open in prayer. Father, we can't, can't ask enough times for your help. You are our strength. Lord, in, in Spirit, we know that insight and understanding comes from you alone. One of the things we're learning from Job is, is not to rely on human wisdom. Although it can come to many good and clear truths, Lord, your word alone is what is absolutely trustworthy. And so we want to understand your word, not just not just to hear a sermon, but Lord, to be transformed by it, to have our our mind, our thinking, our convictions transformed. And so for that, Lord, we need your help. Mere thinking is not sufficient. We need you not only to inform our minds, but to inform our hearts, our souls, to inflame our affections. God, we want to be not just mentally transformed, we want to be wholly transformed in our thinking, in our affections, so that our volition, our wills would be transformed, so that we would obey you as you've commanded us to obey you. Not, not failing to repent from any sin, not failing to pursue any command, but wholly holy in all our being, living for you. And so, Lord, that's our desire. And we ask that you would use our time over the next 45 minutes to bring about that end in your power, through your grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's it's no secret that many people today struggle to know what to believe. That's on account of a number of different reasons. The emergence of fake news. Media that's un, unapologetically biased. There's a deluge of misinformation through social media. I mean, lying and deception has just become normal. It's no longer considered an, a sin or immorality. or It's not even considered wrong. It's just part of how the world functions. It's, it's normative now in our culture. And so how do you know what is true? Well, the study of the knowledge of truth is called epistemology. And it teaches that really there are four sources that people look to for truth, four general sources. The first is probably the most obvious, and that's an authority. Could be a religious authority, could be your parents, a teacher, an expert, or scripture. Uh, Secondly, they look to sensory data or observation. This is called empiricism. People believe what they can see or taste or feel, what they can determine through scientific observation. That's what they have confidence in. It's called empiricism. Thirdly, people look for truth in just the common convictions of men. They believe that truth is innate. Uh, what all men can agree on within their consciences. So things like um, 
don't steal, don't cheat, don't murder. Since in general, all going to agree with those principles. That must be what is ultimately right and wrong. And fourthly, the fourth source of knowledge is that of intuition. That, that means that truth is discovered through inspiration or through insight. It's, it's found somewhat mystically, often through just thinking or pondering life's great problems. After thinking and mulling over these ideas, clarity is then brought and the, the, the inspired solution seems to fit the problems. That's intuition. Now, Christianity actually would embrace all of those four as valid sources of truth. The Bible would actually support them as well. But the ultimate source, the ultimate determiner of what is right and what is wrong, the absolute authority, as you know, is the Word of God, the Bible. And in each of these three cycles that we've been looking at, Job's friends tend to rely upon one of these various sources of knowledge. In the first cycle, they relied on various authorities, historians, philosophers, what the ancients said. Widely accepted religious principles. And they practiced what, in that section, what uh, philosophers would call a pre-modern approach to truth. And then in the second cycle of deliberations, they primarily rely on empirical data. Again, that's what can be scientifically observed. They look at, point to things in nature to verify the principles they're trying to get Job to accept. That's what we would describe as modernism. And in this third cycle, they rely primarily on their own intuition. Or they have a postmodern approach to discovering truth. And throughout their debates, Job's three friends rely on various and valid sources of truth. But what we see is they're all, they all fail to come to the right conclusions. Though much of what they say is accurate, the way they're applying their truths shows that they really don't understand what they're even talking about. They don't understand Job's situation. And we know that because we read chapter 1 and chapter 2. And this is really one of the main points of Job, is that that we're supposed to learn, and that's that human wisdom is insufficient to understand everything that we need to know. We need God's revelation to inform us of what we can't discover on our own. And these three friends have confidence, but they're wrong. Again, even though much of what they say is true. And, and their, their real fault is not so much in their theological assertions. It's not in... Their natural observations. The fault, really, their problem is primarily that they presume to know more than they actually do. And their wisdom is, is vain. It's like they're, they're climbing a ladder with broken legs. And it won't take much for them to see that their, the theory that they have developed about what's going on with Job is, will come crashing to the ground. And God wants us to recognize this, that, that it really, if it wasn't for the first two chapters of Job, we would all be coming to the same conclusions. I mean, because we would see the logic. We would see that what they're saying makes sense. They're, they're drawing on true theological principles. We would come to the same conclusion. And God wants us to see that because 
we need to recognize we don't know everything that we think we know. We need God to reveal so much to us. We need to rely upon the Scriptures and His revelation primarily rather than to follow the wisdom of our own hearts. As it says in another book of wisdom, trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. That's Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. The outline that we'll look at today follows very similar to the, the last three. And that is the friends will give their counsel. You'll notice Zophar is not up there. And that's I've, the purpose behind that is to show that the, the, the friends have run out of gas. They have no longer any more answers for Job. But we'll look at both Eliphaz and Bildad's and then a vo- counsel and then Job's response to them. So let's begin in chapter 22 with Eliphaz's counsel. Uh, his main point in this chapter is essentially that suffering is brought about by sin. He's saying, Job, your suffering, in fact, is evidence of your sin. And he'll go on to describe how great this sin must be. Look at verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Timonite responded, Can a vigorous man be of use to God? Or a wise man be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you're righteous, Job? Or profit if you make your ways perfect? It's because of your reverence that he reproves you? That he enters into judgment against you? This is his logic in these verses. Job, since God doesn't need you, the only reason he would bother himself to intervene into your life is because you need to be taught a lesson. You're not doing what you need to be doing. He wouldn't bother with you if you're truly righteous like you assert. And based upon this principle, Eliphaz gets ultra subjective and he gets mean. It's postmodernism at its worst. Verse 5 Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? First, he assumes Job must have persecuted the weak. For you've taken pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. Job, Job, you're the reason why the naked men are naked. Verse 7, to the weary, you've given no water to drink. And from the hungry, you've withheld bread. Verse 9, you've sent widows away empty and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Lord, Job, this is why things are not going well for you. Verse 10, therefore snares surround you, sudden dread terrifies you of darkness so that you cannot see and abundance of waters cover you. He not only assumes that Job has has acted with great cruelty, he goes on to, to, to actually claim that he knows Job's heart. He must have blasphemed God in his heart. Verses 12 through 20 is this narrative that Eliphaz has written to himself, assuming that he knows what's really going on in Job's heart because he can rightly assess Job's circumstances. Verse 13, you say, what does God know? Can he judge through thick darkness? Clouds are a hiding place for him so he cannot see. He walks on the vault of heaven. Like 
Like the pagans, this is what he's saying, you assume God doesn't see your wicked heart. That you can just get away with it and no, no harm's going to come. And you see the irony here. Right? Eliphaz is assuming that Job denies or at least ignores that the fact that God is omniscient, knows all things. But in doing so, Eliphaz is actually making the assumption that he knows all things, or at least Job's heart. And so he asks in verse 15, Will you keep to the ancient path which wicked men have trod, who were snatched away before their time, whose foundations were washed away? Most scholars believe that he's referring to the flood here. That Eliphaz is making a reference to the flood of Genesis 6 when, it, when God wiped out all the wicked men and women on the face of the earth. Eliphaz is saying, Job, you, you are just like those men that God destroyed. Now again, we need to remember the actual truth. Proven through his trials and God's own proclamation, Job is an upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. We know that to be the case. So Eliphaz is dead wrong. And he assumes the opposite of what is actually true. But he's absolutely convinced that he's right. And he closes his argument with an appeal for Job to repent. Verse 21, yield now and be at peace with him. Thereby good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth and establish his words in your heart. What does Eliphaz mean here? Job hasn't rejected the scripture. He's only denied that his friend's assumptions are inaccurate. Eliphaz here is equating his counsel with God's counsel. And in the verses that follow, Eliphaz then assures Job of the blessings that will follow him if he does repent. And remarkably, everything that Eliphaz lists here sounds right. It even parallels later scriptures that, would, that, that, that give promises of the good that will happen. I think of Psalm 32, when David pleads with people to learn from his mistakes, that when you hide your sin, it destroys you. But when you confess your sin, that's when blessing comes. I mean, Eliphaz seems to support just what David said. The problem is, Eliphaz's counsel doesn't apply at all to Job. Because Job hasn't done anything wrong. Job is seeking God and willing to repent from any of his sins. But he hasn't done any, he hasn't received any of the blessings that Eliphaz promises. And that's why Eliphaz, of course, assumes that he sinned. But Job doesn't even know what sin he needs to repent of. And that's why he wants to speak with God. And that brings us to his response. Job says essentially in these chapters, Eliphaz, you're, you're making up your own reality. I can't talk with you because there's no way to argue with you because truth is lodged just within your own perception. I can only argue with God. So he says in verse 2, even today my complaint is rebellion his hand is heavy despite my groaning oh that i knew where to find him that i might come to his seat i would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments i would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would would say to me and would he contend with me by the greatness of his power 
No, surely he would pay attention to me. Job asserts that if he were able to have an audience with God, that God would listen to him and all would be made clear and God would relent from punishing him. Verse 7, There the upright would reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. And it's possible that the upright person that Job is referring to here is himself because multiple times he's asserted that he's upright, that he's held on to his integrity. But he's also stated multiple times that he is too terrified to come before God. And so this upright person may be referring to his long-for mediator who would stand before his judge and plead on Job's behalf. And the problem is that Job can't talk with God because he can't even find God. Verses 8 and 9. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I can't perceive him. He acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns to the right, I cannot see him. Job can't find God. And then the next verses, 10 through 12, Job then responds to two of Eliphaz's accusations. And the first is that, again, Eliphaz accused him of following the the ancient paths of the wicked, the men of Genesis 6. He says, but God knows the way I take. In verse 10, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He knows I haven't done any wickedness like you accuse me of. And to this, Job asserts that my foot is held fast to his path. I have not, I've kept his way and not turned aside. And the second argument that Job defends himself against is that he's rejected God's word. Verse 12, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I need God's word more than anything. I want God's word. I want an audience. I want him to talk to me. I want want to talk to figure out what's gone wrong. He hasn't rejected it. God's word. He's only rejected the counsel of his friends. But of course, the friends think he's rejected God's word because he rejects their counsel. Job believes only God can explain why all these things have occurred. The wisdom of man is too limited. And again, because of Job 1 and 2, we know Job is a stalwart believer. But his friends are convinced he's not because he isn't being blessed. Instead, he's suffering. And I think many Christians can be like Job here. Although they're truly upright, blameless, I don't mean perfect, but there's no clear sin that they need to be repenting of. Despite this, because of the difficulties they face in life, because life's not going according to their expectations, they assume, based upon their experiences that, and, and the turmoil even within their heart, that they must not be saved. They begin to listen to their own accusations against themselves, and they begin to doubt God's work within their heart. And they don't need Job's friends to say, hey, you're not a believer. Because they do it themselves. Their lack of prosperity may not do, be, have anything to do with their salvation. And in fact, maybe their struggles are just like Job's due to the 
temptations of Satan. And such Christians need to realize that our salvation is not tethered to our experiences. It's not tethered to our feelings. One might ask, well, then how does one know if they are saved? Well, quite simply, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that you are a sinner and that you need salvation and that that Jesus Christ alone is a perfect Savior, a sufficient Savior, that He paid for your sins on the cross? Do you believe this? And in believing this, are you willing to repent from all known sin? If you are, it's a, that's, that's, that's confidence enough that you are saved. Because an unbeliever wouldn't affirm those things. An unbeliever wouldn't want to turn from your, their sin. And that's really maybe the, the most practical question you can ask. Is, do you love your sin more than obedience? And if there's any sin in your life that you're not willing to give up, there is reason to question it. But if you hate your sin and would do whatever you could and, and you feel like Job, if I only knew what it was, I would repent of it. If that's your heart, that's evidence of the Spirit of God within you. And what Job says in the rest of chapter 23 is essentially this. For whatever reason, God has decreed all of these calamities to fall upon me. I recognize that. And I can't change his decree. And and that is what scares me. There's nothing I can do to save myself, to help myself. I know that my only recourse is to go to God. I'm helpless and vulnerable. And that's why I want an audience with him. Because he alone can save And all of chapter 24 essentially asks this question. Job asks this question. I don't understand why God is waiting to punish the wicked and why the righteous suffer. Look at verse 1. 24.1. Why are times not stored up by the Almighty? And why do those who know him not see his days? And he goes on to describe all the things that wicked people get away with. They're lying, they're deceptions, they're murders. And it it just seems that God does, because he doesn't intervene, God must not care. That's what it appears like. I mean, I'm seeing this again and again in life. I I talk with people as they talk about the stories of just the injustice. It could be in minor ways or in big ways. It just seems like the wicked people are running the world. And there is no immediate consequences for their sins. That's what Job's wrestling with in this chapter. Such horrible injustice and inconsistency is everywhere. He describes slaves who are being oppressed in villages and in rural areas. And not just in the country, but in the city. Look at verse 12. From the city men groan, and the souls of the wounded cry out, and yet God does not pay attention to folly. In verses 13 to 17, Job notes that those who walk in darkness seem to get away with their wickedness. He describes in verse 13, murderers who kill at night, thieves that steal at night, adulterers who seduce at night. He says, they're all getting away with it. And they're not getting punished. And Eliphaz accused Job of doing all these things. 
And Job knows he hasn't done all these things, and yet he's the one getting punished. So what's going on? Why do the wicked seem to prosper and the truly righteous suffer? Is God righteous? Because it doesn't look like it. And right, that's the emphasis. And Job knows it. Job knows it doesn't look like God is sovereign. It doesn't look like he is good. It doesn't look like he's just. But he is. I just don't understand it. The inconsistency doesn't make sense. And notice this, his faith still pierces through this confusion in verses 18 through 25. Because he notes that although it appears that God ignores all these wicked deeds, Job knows that he doesn't. Right? The wicked might appear to get away with their sins for a time, but their day is coming. In the judgment, they will be struck down. They will be destroyed. And they will be gathered up like heads of grain whose heads have been cut off. Verses 22 to 25. And this brings us to Bildad's counsel. In, in response to Job's assertions here, Bildad simply asserts the same two doctrinal truths that we've heard before. One, Job, God is almighty. He's sovereign. Secondly, he says, in Job, man is unrighteous. He's impure and helpless before them. Job, your problem is you don't understand these two doctrines. God is holy and you're not. If you understood this, you wouldn't be complaining. You'd be repenting. And because it's short, I'll just go ahead and read all of it. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, Dominion and awe belong to him who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops? And upon who does his light not rise? How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who's born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. Now to his credit, Bildad does a great job of exalting the great and majestic glory of God. In his words here. But his problem in his argument is twofold. First, he's forgotten what his original purpose in talking with Job was. He came to comfort. And it doesn't take a genius to recognize these words aren't comforting at all, in the least. Secondly, the problem with his argument is he actually overstates the insignificance of man in God's sight. Although it's ontologically true that man is nothing compared to God. It's true. We don't add to him. We don't help him. We don't give him anything that he needs because he doesn't need anything. We're completely dependent upon him for everything that we do. But even though all these things are true, it doesn't mean that God views men as maggots and worms. That's where, uh, that's where Bildad goes way too far. Consider what God declares through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31.20 Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. 
and therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares Yahweh. Through the prophet Isaiah, he asks, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. And I believe that's a, that's a prophecy about the crucifixion. And it's not just Israel God loves, but the whole world. John 3.16 For God so loved agape, the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And not just the good people in the world. Romans 5.8 But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is absolutely not true that God views men as maggots and worms. God couldn't express his love enough. Recall the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15, 24, how the father, which, which represents God the father, ran to meet his lost son all the indignity that that implied and embraced him. And he said this, slaughtering the fatted calf and declaring in tears, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That is the heart of God. Not what Bildad believes. Bildad has completely distorted the reality of God. And he's done so with true doctrines. And here's the principle for us. We have to be very careful with our theology. Because we can use good theology to actually misrepresent God to others. And we dare not misrepresent him. Remember the consequence that uh, that happened to Moses. When he misrepresented God to the people of Israel. Exodus 20, verse 12. Yahweh said, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. The thing that Moses wanted with, with more than anything else in his, all his life was to see the promised land. He was like 120. All of his years he'd been looking for that final deliverance, walking with this, this disgruntled, complaining people for 40 years through the wilderness. And at the very end, he blows it. And God said, there's a consequence. You will uphold me as holy before people. And the point is, we dare not misrepresent God. We have to be very careful with our theology. And this brings us to Job's response, which is very sobering to those who do up, end up mis, misrepresenting God to others. In chapter 26, Job essentially says this, God is great, as you say, Bildad, but greater even than you described. And therefore, know that you are doomed 
because you have misrepresented him. Job knows Bildad's wrong. And he warns him. And Job's right here in this warning because God affirms what Job says later on in the book. And in the previous chapter, remember, Bildad affirmed the greatness and majesty of God in order to get Job to admit that he's a sinner and he needs to repent. In which Job responds, you know what? God is even greater than you imagine, Bildad. And he goes on to describe God's greatness in the underworld in verses 5 through 6. He then describes God's greatness in the heavens above in verses 7 through 10. And then he describes God's greatness upon the earth in verses 11 through 14. So he's saying, no matter where you look, no matter where you didn't go, from the farthest reaches of heaven to the depths of the earth, God's glory is there. It's everywhere. Bill, that you haven't seen just the, the, you've only seen a glimpse of it. I mean, recognize they didn't have the Hubble telescope. God's glory is greater than you can imagine. And yet, what men can see of God in these works are but the fringes of His real operations. Just a, just a faint whisper of God's power. We, in the 21st century, we still don't see everything. We don't understand how all the physical forces of the world work, like gravity and strong force and weak force and all that stuff that I don't understand. We, don't, we can't see to the farthest reach of the universe. We don't understand how we make guesses and I think using good science, but we're confused. We don't understand. We don't understand how God works through men's hearts, turning the hearts of kings wherever he wills to bring about his sovereign persons. How can God be completely sovereign, work everything according to his plans, and yet men be, have a free will and within that free will work exactly how God plans them to work? Nobody can explain that. And yet it's true. No man can fully understand the power and might of God. That's what he says in verse 14. And given, given the reality of God's unfathomable power, Job says, you need to check yourself before you presume to speak for God. And that's his main point in the rest of chapter 27. Verses 1 through 6. Job asserts his integrity again as if to say, you are wrong in how you've accused me. Look at verse 4. My lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare you right, till I die will not put away my integrity from me. I will hold fast my righteousness, I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me any of my days. I have a clean conscience. But then in verse 7, it demonstrates that there's more than here than just a defense of his own integrity. Because he knows he's right, his friends are in grave danger because they presume to speak for God. Verse 7, may my enemy, and in, in the grammar here, he's referring to his friends, may my enemy be as the wicked and my opponent as the unjust. And, and the logic here is that in the ancient times, the policy was if a person brings an accusation against another person and it turns out to be false, the, the accuser will have to bear the punishment that would have been meted out upon that not guilty person, on the accused. 
And Job, just remember all the things that his friends say Job deserved. Job saying, you have brought this back on yourself. By your words, you will be justified. And by your words, by your own words, you'll be condemned. All right, this is Matthew 12, 33. Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so Job goes on to describe the fate of the wicked in five pictures. First, he says the genetic lines of the wicked will be cut off, verses 13 to 15. Second, they'll lose all their wealth, 16 through 17. Third, they will lose their property, verses 18 and 19. One day the wicked is going to wake up and everything they have is gone. It's just been stripped away from them. Fourth, the wicked person himself will also perish. 20 to 22. And then fifth, people will rejoice when that happens. Rather than mourning the death, they will be celebrating. And Job's point here is that, friends, you have brought this condemnation upon yourself because you presume to speak for God and you're wrong dead wrong and this brings us to the conclusion of the deliberations chapter 28 this is the this is kind of the the capstone chapter of all the deliberations from chapter 3 to 27 28 is the capstone it explains it all it's the conclusion and this is the main point that 28 tells us due to the limitations of human wisdom man needs he's desperate for divine revelation human wisdom is not enough just as chapter 27 demonstrated that even though the wicked will get what's coming to them that fact alone doesn't explain why the world works the way it does it doesn't explain why the wicked do get away with it for a time why the righteous get suffer and 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 and, and, are, and are persecuted If God is sovereign and he loves them, it doesn't explain everything. Job's three friends continue to assert that they understood all of God's ways. And what Job says here in chapter 28 is that no man, no man can understand why God does what he does. The only way we can understand any of God's workings is if God reveals it to us. The only things we can be absolutely confident of in this life is Scripture. That's it. That doesn't mean truth can't be discovered outside of Scripture. But even those things we, dis- we discern, we have to hold with a, a tentative hand. Only God's Word is absolutely certain. That's the point. Right? Even though men can mine treasure out of the depths of the earth, they can't discover wisdom on their own. That's this point in, chapter, in verses 1 through 11. And they can dig for gold, they can dig for diamonds, but they can't find truth. Job asked this in verse 12, Where can wisdom be found? 
where's the place of understanding? In verses 13 through 19, he asserts that true wisdom, in fact, is so valuable. All the precious jewels, all the gold in the world could never purchase it. Because the only place you can get wisdom, true wisdom, is from God. Because He alone knows all things. He alone can explain it all perfectly. And so if you want that wisdom, you have to go to Him. Or He, better off, better, rather, He needs to reveal it to you. Job asks in verse 20, Where then can wisdom be, come from? Where is the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. So he answers his own question in verse 23. God understands its way and he knows its place. And in the, in the Hebrew, God here is emphatic. He alone knows where wisdom can be found because he alone knows all things. He alone created it all and set it into motion. He sees with one effortless glance that the ends of the earth, everything under the heavens, 23 and 24. Then in 25 and 27, he asserts that when God set creation to being, he alone knew what he was doing. He alone understood the full purposes behind all of his designs. He alone knew the answer for why Satan got away with tempting Adam and Eve into sin. He alone knows why he even created angels and allowed for fallen angels. We can guess, we can conjecture, we don't know. Only he knows. We don't know why, how God is going to work all the different trials in our life for good. We can guess. We don't know. But He knows. He says in verse 25 regarding God, when He imparted the weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when He set a limit for the rain and the course for the thunderbolt, then He saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. I mean, he did it. He did it. He did it. And he alone knows what he's trying to accomplish. While men can't even find wisdom, these, these verbs suggest that only God possesses it and understands it. And then Job just drops the mic here in verse 28. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Right? The, the essence of true wisdom, the wisdom that we need, for the essence of it is two things. Fear God. Fear His opinion. Fear sinning against Him. Fear misrepresenting Him. Fear God and secondly, depart from evil. And which, this description, which, as you recall, is exactly how God described Job in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Job feared God and turned away from evil. Job was the wise one all along. It was his friends who boasted in their wisdom and slammed Job because of his folly. And yet it was Job who was wise. Because he, he continued to assert, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't get it. I haven't sinned. I haven't rejected God's word. I, I, I want to talk with him. I, I need a mediator. I need forgiveness. Yes, I need all these things. But I don't understand any of it. Job, that's wisdom. To be able to say, I don't know. I need to be told. 
I need God's word. Right? It was only on account of engaging with their human assumptions that Job was led astray. It's, it's, only, it's only when he started listening to his friends that he began to over-assert his own righteousness. He went too far. And he began, even buying into their logic, he began to accuse God of acting unjustly. And you'll get rebuked for it, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. But this is the point. At the end of the day, brothers and sisters, people don't need our wisdom. They need God's wisdom. Right? That's why you're here. That's why you come and listen to preaching for most of the worship service. It's because you want to hear God's word and have God's word explained. You haven't come to hear my thoughts or any cute illustrations or inspiring stories. You want to understand what God's word says. That's why you prefer expository preaching. Explain God's word to me. I need the words of eternal life, not just the common everyday wisdom that I can get from just watching Oprah. Most of which isn't true anyway. And this is why Paul asserted in 1 Corinthians 1. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, right? Job's long for mediator who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The one who recognizes I haven't derived any of this on my own. It is all a gift. He's the one that is wise. He's the one that gets it. The one who recognizes I got nothing to boast in and I don't want any man's glory. I just want my Christ. He's alone. He's all that I need. He is wisdom. He is righteous. He is the one that I need. My Redeemer and King. So the wisdom that's been revealed to us in 1 Corinthians, it's, it's the message of the cross. This is the only way. This is the only way men can be made right with their creator. Is that if, that's if the, the perfect creator himself takes on flesh and pair, bears the penalty for their sin. And who would believe such a message? I mean, it sounds like absolute foolishness. Why would a holy God care about a maggot? But this is what we believe. And this is what we preach. Because this is what has been revealed to us by God himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We dare not boast in anything. And we thank you that you've given us everything. And we thank you that one day everything will be made clear. All wrongs will be righted. All the misrepresentations, all the misunderstanding will be cleared up. All the evil that was done in secret and hidden and buried. All the lies that came from it. Lord, it will be exposed for all to see. 
And all men will see on that day, there really, there was no one righteous, no, not one, except Christ. And you will receive all the glory, all the honor, all the praise from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And Lord, that is our great longing and hope. Come quickly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.